Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a continuation of Simon Anthony reading Douglas Adams' fantastic masterwork, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've got quite a long way in by now. At least two of our heroes are on a planet which is rather covered in coffins. The other two we've somewhat lost since they were teleported rather randomly from absolute assured death when the ship they were on was piloted, well, manned, well, roboted by Marvin into the heart of a sun. We're now at chapter 23. The others are available online somewhere called Torty Talks. Anyway, to continue... Look, there's a plaque on this one, explained to Arthur. It's frosted over. He rubbed the frost clear and examined the engraved characters. To Arthur, they looked like the footprints of a spider that had one or two too many of whatever it was that spiders have on a night out, but Ford instantly recognised an early form of galactic easy read. It says Golga Fincham Art Fleet, Ship B, Hold 7, Telephone Sanitizer, Second Class. And a serial number. A telephone sanitizer, said Arthur. A dead telephone sanitizer? Best kind. But what's he doing here? Ford peered through the top of the figure within. Not a lot, he said, and suddenly flashed one of those grins which always made people think he was overdoing things recently and should try to get some rest. He scampered over to another sarcophagus. A moment's brisk towel work, and he announced, This one's a dead hairdresser. Whoopee! The next sarcophagus revealed itself to be the last resting place of an advertising account executive. The one after that contained a second-hand car salesman, third class. An inspection hatch let into the floor suddenly caught Ford's attention, and he squatted down to unfasten it, thrashing away at the clouds of freezing gas that threatened to envelop him. A thought occurred to Arthur. If these are just coffins, he said, why are they kept so cold? Or indeed, why are they kept anywhere? said Ford, tugging the hatchway open. The gas poured down through it. Why, in fact, is anyone going to all the trouble of, and expense of carting 5,000 dead bodies through space? 10,000, said Arthur, pointing to the archway through which the next chamber was dimly visible. Ford stuck his head down through the floor hatchway and looked up again. 15,000, he said. There's another lot down there. 15 million, said a voice. That's a lot, said Ford. Turn around slowly, barked a voice, and put up your hands. Any other move and I blast you into tiny, tiny bits. Hello, said Ford, turning around slowly, putting his hands up and not making any other move. Why, said Arthur Dent, isn't anyone ever pleased to see us? Standing silhouetted in the doorway through which entered the vault was a man who wasn't pleased to see them. His displeasure was communicated partly by the barking, hectoring quality of his voice and partly by the viciousness with which he waved a long, silver, kilo-zap gun at them. The designer of the gun had clearly not been instructed to beat about the bush. 
Make it evil, he'd been told. Make it totally clear that this gun has a right end and a wrong end. Make it totally clear to anyone standing at the wrong end that things are going badly for them. And if that means sticking all sorts of spikes and prongs and blackened bits all over it, then so be it. This is not a gun for hanging over the fireplace or sticking in the umbrella stand. This is a gun for going out and making people's life miserable with. Ford and Arthur looked at the gun unhappily. The man with the gun from the door had circled round them. As he came into the light, they could see his black and gold uniform, on which the buttons were so highly polished that they shone with an intensity which would have made an approaching motorist flash his lights in annoyance. He gestured at the door. Out, he said. People who can supply that amount of firepower don't need to supply verbs as well. Ford and Arthur went out closely followed by the wrong end of the kilo-zap gun and the buttons. Turning into the corridor, they were jostled by twenty-four oncoming joggers, now showered and changed, who swept on past them into the vault. Arthur turned to watch them in confusion. Move! screamed their captor. Arthur moved. Ford shrugged and moved. In the vault, the joggers went to twenty-four empty sarcophagi along the side wall, opened them, climbed in, and fell into twenty-four dreamless sleeps. Chapter 24 Oh, Captain? Yes, number one. Just heard a sort of a report thingy from uh, number two. Oh, dear. High up on the bridge of the ship, the captain stared out into the infinite reaches of space with mild irritation. From where he reclined beneath a wide domed bubble, he could see before and above him the vast panorama of stars through which they were moving, a panorama that had thinned out noticeably during the course of the voyage. Turning and looking backwards over the vast two-mile bulk of the ship, he could see the far denser mass of stars behind him, which seemed to form an almost solid band. This was the view through the galactic centre from which they were travelling, and indeed had been travelling for years, at a speed that he couldn't quite remember at the moment, but he knew it was terribly fast. It was something approaching the speed of something or other, or, or was it three times the speed of something else? Jolly impressive, anyway. He peered into the bright distance behind the ship, looking for something. He did this every few minutes or so, but never found what he was looking for. He didn't let it worry him, though. The scientist chaps had been very insistent that everything was going to be perfectly all right, providing nobody panicked and everybody got on and did their bit in an orderly fashion. He wasn't panicking. As far as he was concerned, everything was going splendidly. He dabbed at his shoulder with a large, frothy sponge. He crept back into his mind that he was feeling mildly irritated about something. Now, what was all that about? A slight cough alerted him to the fact that the ship's first officer was still standing nearby. Nice chap, number one. <laughs> Not one of the very brightest. Had that odd spot of difficulty doing up his shoelaces, but jolly good officer material for all that. The captain wasn't a man to kick a chap when he was bending over trying to do up his shoelaces, however long it took him. Not like that ghastly number two, strutting about all over the place, polishing his buttons, issuing reports every hour. 
Stip still moving, Captain. Still on course, Captain. Oxygen level still being maintained, Captain. Give it a miss, was the captain's vote. That was the one thing that had been irritating him. He peered down at number one. Yes, Captain. He was shouting something or other about having found some prisoners. The captain thought about this. Seemed pretty unlikely to him, but he wasn't one to stand in his officer's way. Well, perhaps that'll keep him happy for a bit, he said. He's always wanted some. Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent trudged onwards up the ship's apparently endless corridors. Number two marched behind them, barking the occasional order about not making any false moves or trying any funny stuff. They seemed to have passed at least a mile of continuous brown hessian wall weave. Finally, they reached a large steel door, which slid open when number two shouted at it. They entered. To the eyes of Fort Prefect and Arthur Dent, the most remarkable thing about the ship's bridge was not the 50-foot diameter hemispherical dome which covered it, and through which the dazzling display of stars shone down on them. To people who have eaten at the restaurant at the end of the universe, such wonders are commonplace. Nor was it the bewildering array of instruments that crowded the long circumferential wall around them. To Arthur, this was exactly what spaceships were traditionally supposed to look like, and to Ford it looked thoroughly antiquated. He confirmed his suspicions that Disaster Area's stuntship had taken them back at least a million, if not two million years before their own time. No, the thing that really caught them off balance was the bath. The bath stood on a six-foot pedestal of rough-hewn blue-water crystal that was of a baroque monstrosity not often seen outside the Maximegalon Museum of Diseased Imaginings. An intestinal jumble of plumbing had been picked out in gold leaf rather than decently buried at midnight in an unmarked grave. The taps and shower attachment would have made a gargoyle jump. As the dominant centrepiece of a starship bridge, it was terribly wrong, and it was with the embittered air of the man who knew this that number two approached it. Captain, sir, he shouted through clenched teeth. A difficult trick, but he had had years during which to perfect it. Large genial face with a genial foam-covered arm popped up above the rim of the monstrous bath. Ah, hello, number two, said the captain, waving a cheery sponge. Having a nice day? Number two snapped even further to attention than he already was. I have brought you the prisoners I located in Freezer Bay 7, sir, he yapped. Ford and Arthur coughed in confusion. Uh, hello, they said. The captain beamed at them. So number two really had found some prisoners. Well, good for him, thought the captain. Nice to see a chap doing what he's best at. Ah, hello there, he said to them. Excuse me now, getting up, having a quick bath. Well, uh, gin tonics all round. Uh, look at the fridge, number one. Certainly, sir. It's a curious fact, and, and one to which no one quite knows how much important to attach, that something like 85% of all known worlds in the galaxy, be they primitive or highly advanced, have invented a drink called ginantonics, or gntonics, or ginanornics, or any one of a thousand or more variations on the same phonetic theme. The drinks themselves are not the same and vary between the Silvovian Sinanato Mingis, which is an ordinary water served at slightly above room temperature, and the Gargakrakian Tzin Anthony Kicks, which 
kills cows at a hundred paces, and in fact, the one common factor between all of them, beyond the fact that the names sound the same, is that they were all invented and named before the world's concerned made contact with any other worlds. What can be made of this fact? It exists in total isolation. As far as any theory of structural linguistics is concerned, it is right off the graph, and yet it persists. Old structural linguists get very angry when young structural linguists go on about it. Young structural linguists get deeply excited about it and stay up late at night, convinced that they are very close to something of profound importance, and end up becoming old structural linguists before their time, getting very angry with young ones. Structural linguistics is a bitterly divided and unhappy discipline, and a large number of its practitioners spend too many nights drowning their problems in whiskey and sodas. Number two stood before the captain's bathtub, trembling with frustration. Don't you want to interrogate the prisoner, sir? he squealed. The captain peered at him in amusement. Why, young Golga Frencham, should I want to do that? he asked. To get information out of them, sir. To find out where they came here. Oh, no, 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 said the captain. I suppose they just dropped in for a quick gin and tonics, <laughs> didn't you? But, sir, they're my prisoners. I must interrogate them. The captain looked at them doubtfully. Oh, all right, he said. If you must, ask them what they want to drink. A hard, cold gleam came into Number Two's eyes. He advanced slowly on Ford, Prefect, and Arthur Dent. All right, you scum, he growled. You vermin, he jabbed Ford with the killer's zap gun. Steady on Number Two, admonished the captain gently. What do you want to drink? Number Two screamed. Well, the uh, uh, gin and tonic sounds very nice to me, said Ford. What about you, Arthur? Arthur blinked. Well, uh, oh, uh, yes, he said. With ice or without, bellowed number two. Oh, with, please, said Ford. Lemon? Yes, please, said Ford. And do you have any of those nice little biscuits, you know, the cheesy ones? I'm asking uh, questions, howled number two, his body quaking with apoplectic fury. Uh, number two, said the captain softly. Sir, push off with you, there's a good chap. I'm trying to have a relaxing bath. Number two's eyes narrowed and became what are known in the shouting and killing people trade as cold slits. The idea presumably being to give your opponent the impression that you've lost your glasses or are having difficulty keeping awake. Why this is frightening is an as yet unresolved problem. He advanced on the captain. His, number two's, mouth a thin, hard line. Again, tricky to know why this is understood as frightening behaviour. If, whilst wandering through the jungle of troll, you were suddenly to come upon the fabled ravenous bug bladder beast, you would have reason to be grateful if its mouth was a thin, hard line, rather than, as it usually is, a gaping mass of slavering fangs. May I remind you, sir, hissed number two of the captain, that you have now been in that bath for over three years. This final shot delivered, number two spun on his heel and stalked off to a corner to practice darting eye movements in the mirror. The captain squirmed in his bath. He gave Ford Prefect a lame smile. Well, you need to relax a lot on a job like mine, he said. Ford slowly lowered his hands. It provoked no reaction. Arthur lowered his. 
Treading very slowly and carefully, Ford moved over to the bath pedestal. He patted it. Nice, he lied. He wondered if it was safe to grin. Very slowly and carefully, he grinned. It was safe. Um, he said to the captain. Yes, said the captain. I uh, wonder, said Ford, could I ask you actually what your job is, in fact? A hand tapped him on the shoulder. He span round. It was the first officer. You drinks, he said. Oh, thank you, said Ford. He and Arthur took their gin and tonics. Arthur sipped his and was surprised to discover it tasted very much like a whiskey and soda. I mean, I, I couldn't help noticing, said Ford, also taking a sip. The um, bodies in the hold. Bodies, said the captain in surprise. Ford paused and thought to himself, never take anything for granted, he thought. Could it be that the captain doesn't know he's got 15 million dead bodies on his ship? The captain was nodding cheerfully at him and also appeared to be playing with a rubber duck. Ford looked round. Number two was staring at him in the mirror, but only for an instant. His eyes were constantly on the move. The first officer was just standing there, holding the drinks tray and smiling benignly. Body, said the captain again. Ford licked his lips. Yes, he said. All those dead telephone sanitizers and account executives, you know, down in the hold. The captain stared at him. Suddenly he threw back his head and laughed. Oh, they're not dead, he said. Good Lord, no. No, they're frozen. They're going to be revived. Ford did something he very rarely did. He blinked. Arthur seemed to come out of a trance. You mean you've got a hole full of frozen hairdressers, he said. Oh, yes, said the captain. Millions of them. Hairdressers, tired TV producers, insurance salesmen, personnel officers, security guards, public relations executives, management consultants, you name them. We've got to colonise another planet. Ford wobbled very slightly. Exciting, isn't it, said the captain. What, uh, with that lot, said Arthur. Ah, now, uh, don't misunderstand me, said the captain. We're just one of the ships in the Ark fleet. We're the uh, B-Ark, you see. Uh, sorry, can I just ask you to run a bit more hot water for me? Arthur obliged, and a cascade of pink, frothy water swirled around the bath. The captain let out a sigh of pleasure. Thank you so much, my dear fellow. Uh, do help yourself to more drinks, of course. Ford tossed down his drink, took the bottle from the first officer's tray, and refilled his glass to the top. What is a, a bee arc? This is, said the captain, and swished the foamy water around joyfully with the duck. Yes, said Ford, but, well, what's happened was, you see, um, said the captain, our planet, uh, the world from which we came, uh, was, so to speak, um, doomed. Doomed? Oh, yes. Uh, so, um, what everybody thought was, let's pack the whole population to some giant spaceships and go and settle on another planet. Having told this much of his story, he settled back with a satisfied grunt. You mean a less doomed one, prompted Arthur. What did he say, dear fellow? A, a less doomed planet you were going to settle on? Are going to settle on, yes. Uh, so it was decided to build three ships, you see, three arcs in space. And uh, I'm not boring you, am I? No, no, said Ford firmly. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, it's delightful, reflected the captain, to have someone else to talk to for a change. 
Number two's eyes darted feverishly about the room again, then settled back on the mirror like a pair of flies barely distracted from their favourite prey of month-old meat. Trouble with a long journey like this, continued the captain, is that you end up just talking to yourself a lot, which gets terribly boring because half the time you know what you're going to say next. Only half the time? asked Arthur in surprise. The captain thought for a moment. Yes, about half, I'd say. Anyway, where's the soap? He fished around and found it. Yes, so anyway, he resumed, uh, the idea was that in the first ship, the A-ship, would go all the brilliant leaders, the scientists, the great artists, you know, all, all the achievers, and into the third or C-ship would go all the people who did the actual work, who made things and did things, and then into the B-ship, that's us, would go everyone else, the middlemen, you see. He smiled happily at them. And we set off first, uh, he concluded, and hummed a little bathing tune. The little bathing tune, which had been composed for him by one of the world's most exciting and prolific jingle writers, who was currently asleep in hold 36, some 900 yards behind them, covered what would otherwise have been an awkward moment of silence. Ford and Arthur shuffled their feet and furiously avoided each other's eyes. Ah, uh, said Arthur after a moment, what exactly was it that was wrong with your planet, then? Oh, it was doomed, as I said, said the captain. Apparently it was going to crash into the sun or something. Or maybe it was the moon was going to crash into us. <laughs> something of the kind. Oh, the absolutely terrifying prospect, whatever it was. Oh, said the first officer suddenly. I thought it was that the planet was going to be invaded by a gigantic swarm of twelve-foot piranha bees. Wasn't that it? Number two span around, eyes ablaze, the cold hard light that only comes with the amount of practice he was prepared to put in. It's not what I was told, he hissed. My commanding officer told me the entire planet was in imminent danger of being eaten by an enormous mutant star goat. Oh, really? said Ford Prefect. Yes, a mysterious creature from the pit of hell with scything teeth, 10,000 miles long breath, with those boil oceans, claws that can tear continents from their roots, a thousand eyes, the bird like the sun, slavery jaws a million miles across, a monster such as you've never, never, ever. <laughs> and they made sure you set off first, did they? inquired Arthur. Oh, yes, said the captain. Well, everyone said, very nicely, I thought, that it was very important for morale to feel that they would be arriving on a planet where they could be sure of a good haircut and where the phones were clean. Ah, oh, yes, agreed Ford. I can see that would be very important. And the uh, other ships, um, they, they followed on after you, did they? For a moment, the captain did not answer. He twisted around in his bath and gazed backwards over the huge bulk of the ship towards the bright galactic centre. He squinted into the inconceivable distance. Ah, well, funny you should say that, he said, and allowed himself a slight frown at Ford Prefect, because, curiously enough, we haven't heard a peep out of them since we left five years ago. But they must be behind us somewhere. He peered off into the distance again. Ford peered with him and gave a thoughtful frown. Unless, of course, he said softly, they were eaten by the goat. Ah, oh, yes, said the captain with a slight hesitancy creeping into his voice. The goat. 
His eyes passed over the solid shapes of the instruments and computers that lined the bridge. They winked away innocently at him. He stared out at the stars, but none of them said a word. He glanced at his first and second officers, but they seemed lost in their own thoughts for a moment. He glanced at Ford Prefect, who raised his eyebrows at him. It's a funny thing, you know, said the captain at last, but now that I actually come to tell a story to someone else, I mean, does it strike you as odd, number two? Said number two. Well, said Ford, I can see what a lot of things you're going to talk about. So thanks for the drinks, and if you could sort of uh, drop us off at the nearest convenient planet. Ha, well, that's a little difficult, you see, said the captain, because our trajectory thingy was preset before we left the Golga Frenchman. I think partly because I'm not very good with figures. You mean we're stuck here on this ship, explained Ford, suddenly losing patience with the whole charade. When are you meant to be reaching this planet you're meant to be colonising? Oh, we're nearly there, I think, said the captain. Any second now. It's probably time I was getting out of this bath, in fact. Oh, I don't know that. Why stop when you're just enjoying it? So we're actually going to land in a minute? Well, not so much land, in fact, not actually uh, land as uh, so much as, uh, no, um, what are you talking about, said Ford sharply. Well, said Captain, picking his way through the words carefully, I think, as far as I can remember, we were programmed to crash on it. Crash, shouted Ford and Arthur. Uh, yes, said the Captain, yes, it, it's all part of the plan, I think. There was a terribly good reason for it, which I, I can't quite remember at the moment. It was something to do with, um, Ford exploded. You're a load of useless bloody loonies, he shouted. Ah, yes, that was it, beamed the captain. That was the reason. And there we must leave our confused adventurers in the lurch as usual, but with every hope of something miraculous occurring, as it so frequently does. Anyway, these are available online and on Ambron Radio from time to time. I hope you enjoy them all. Thank you for your attention. And at this point, I must make uh, an apology to the more assiduous of listeners, uh, uh, which must amount to the entirety of the listening public. I am suffering from long COVID, a point that I may have mentioned uh, quite a number of times in previous episodes, not of Hitchhiker's Guide. This rots the brain. It robs me of energy, strength, um, concentration, um, any ability at all that you can think of. I lose it when, um, when I get tired. And I get tired very, very often and with extreme ease. In fact, I uh, take oh, upwards of a week to record each episode. I run through it in much the way that uh, the people who listened to this episode the first time round um, would have recognised as being a, a, a first reading, a, a blind reading. I, I know the, uh, the storyline in general terms, but I haven't read it again. The plan is that I do what you clearly heard that I hadn't done, was read it, get it horribly wrong probably, and then cut out the bad bits. 
which I have now done, I hope, to uh, greater satisfaction um, on the, uh, the the previous work, which is uh, some four minutes shorter after the fixing than it was in the broadcast that I just listened to, much to my chagrin shame. Anyway, I'll take this opportunity to uh, fill the remaining moments of uh, this this podcast to point out that long COVID is so named because it lasts a long time. It is something you get after you've had COVID, which you may not even have noticed you have had. It is similar to, but not identical, to ME, which, like long COVID itself, has been considered by the medical practitioners of uh, my uh, experience for quite a very long time to be complete rubbish. This is not the case. I have lost, I think, basically years of my life to it. I am currently 65, <laughs> but I quite frequently feel 80 or 95, which is not fun. I walk with a shuffle, uh, with a stick, and hold on to just about anything I can find that might perhaps bear my weight should I need it to. But I am in no way capable of knowing where I'm going before I've actually started going there. Uh, it is frightening. It is unpleasant. Uh, so I don't do it very often. It means I, I uh, either lie in bed or sit in a chair for absolutely ages. And that is the very good place to sit and make uh, sound recordings, which you have just heard a bit of, and which you are hearing me uh, uh, doing another one of. It is uh, quite possible, it is increasingly possible, that because there are literally millions of people in my condition, that something is actually being done. I really hope you are not one of the poor people who suffer as I do, but if you do, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There you go. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. Right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's probably a very good time for you to stop listening, even though there is another half hour of this particular podcast. It was transmitted on uh, on Ambron Radio um, in its first version, which is what follows. And to, to my great embarrassment, I discovered I had uploaded the unedited version quite how uh, this came to be is uh, explained at the end of the first episode which is four minutes shorter than it should have been because there's four minutes of junk which i had to remove i'm adding that entire unedited version at the end of this as an indication of my uh, working practices and the uh, a sort of a, a record of the way in which long covid can destroy a brain um, is of historical interest only. I, I think this is mildly humorous in some other ways, but uh, it gives an, uh, an, an insight into my way of working. It, it 
that uh, has taken me <laughs> quite some long time to get all this sorted out. I'm still not entirely sure that I have. And as you can tell from my voice, I am still stuck with the effects of whatever long COVID does to a body. Um, at the time of recording, I am about to have an operation which will wonderfully do absolutely nothing to cure the, sub the uh, symptoms from which I'm suffering. But in the process of looking to find what an average is I am suffering from, which is called long COVID, I discovered potential cancer. Such fun. So my thyroid is being attacked. I'm sure at some point I shall make some note as to what will happen there, but here we go. That's the end of my apology and excuse for the following chunk of program material. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a continuation of Simon Anthony reading Douglas Adams' fantastic masterwork, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We've got quite a long way in by now. At least two of our heroes are on a planet which is rather covered in coffins. The other two we've somewhat lost since they were teleported rather randomly from absolute assured death when the ship they were on was piloted, well, manned, well, roboted by Marvin into the heart of a sun. We're now at chapter 23. The others are available online somewhere called Torty Talks. Anyway, to continue. Look, there's a plaque on this one, explained to Arthur. It's frosted over. He rubbed the frost clear and examined the engraved characters. To Arthur, they looked like the footprints of a spider that had one or two too many of whatever it was that spiders have on a night out, but Ford instantly recognised an early form of galactic easy read. It says Golga Fincham Art Fleet, Ship B, Hold 7, Telephone Sanitizer, Second Class, and a serial number. A telephone sanitizer, said Arthur. A dead telephone sanitizer? Best kind. But what's he doing here? Ford peered through the top of the figure at the figure within. Not a lot, he said, and suddenly flashed one of those grins which always made people think he was overdoing things recently and should try to get some rest. He scampered over to another sarcoph sarcophagus, a moment's brisk towel work, and he announced, This one's a dead hairdresser. Whoopee! The next sarcophagus, the next sarcophagus, revealed itself to be the last resting place of an advertising account executive. The one after that contained a second-hand car salesman, third class. An inspection hat, an inspection hatch, let them to, an inspection hats, an inspection hatch let them into a. An inspection hatch let into the floor suddenly caught Ford's attention, and he squatted down to unfasten it, thrashing away at the clouds of freezing gas that threatened to envelop him. A thought occurred to Arthur. <coughs> if these are just coffins, he said, why are they kept so cold? Or indeed, why are they kept anywhere, said Ford, tugging the hatchway open. The gas poured down through it. 
Why, in fact, is anyone going to all the trouble of, and expense of carting 5,000 dead bodies through space? 10,000, said Arthur, pointing to the archway through which the next chamber was dimly visible. Ford stuck his head down through the floor hatchway and looked up again. 15,000, he said. There's another lot down there. 15 million, said a voice. That's a lot, said Ford. A lot, a lot. Turn around, turn around slowly, barked a voice, and put your hands, put up your hands. Any other move and I blast you into tiny, tiny bits. Hello, said Ford, turning round slowly, putting his hands up and not making any other move. Why, said Arthur Dent, isn't anyone ever pleased to see us? Standing silhouetted in the doorway through which they had just entered, the vault was a man, through where they had entered, the vault, through where they had entered the vault, was a man who wasn't pleased to see them. His displeasure was communicated partly by the barking, hectoring quality of his voice and partly by the viciousness with which he waved a long, silver, kilo-zap gun at them. The designer of the gun had clearly not been instructed to beat about the bush. Make it evil, he'd been told. Make it totally clear that this gun has a right end and a wrong end. Make it totally clear to anyone standing at the wrong end that things are going badly for them. And if that means sticking all sorts of spikes and prongs and blackened bits all over it, then so be it. This is not a gun for hanging over the fireplace or sticking in the umbrella stand. This is a gun for going out and making, making people's life miserable with. Ford and Arthur looked at the gun unhappily. The man with the gun from the door had circled round them. As he came into the light, they could see his black and gold uniform, on which the buttons were so, so highly polished that they shone with an intensity which would have made an approaching motorist flash his lights in annoyance. He gestured at the door. Out, he said. People who can supply that amount of firepower don't need to supply verbs. People who can supply that amount of firepower don't need to supply verbs as well. Ford and Arthur went out, closely followed by the wrong end of the kilo-zap gun and the buttons. Turning into the corridor, they were... People who can supply that amount of firepower don't need to supply verbs as well. Ford and Arthur went out closely followed by the wrong end of the kill closely followed by the wrong end of the kilo zap gun and the buttons turning into the corridor they were jostled by 24 oncoming joggers now showered and changed who swept on past them into the vault arthur turned to watch them in confusion move screamed their captor arthur moved ford shrugged and moved in the vault, the joggers went to 24 empty sarcophagi along the side wall, opened them, climbed in, and fell into 24 dreamless sleeps. Chapter Chapter 24 Oh, Captain? Yes, number one. Just heard a sort of a report thingy from uh, number two. Oh, dear. High up on the bridge of the ship, the captain stared out into the infinite reaches of space with mild irritation. From where he reclined beneath a wide domed bubble, he could see before and above him the vast panorama of stars through which they were moving, a panorama that had thinned out noticeably during the course of the voyage. 
Turning and looking backwards over the vast two-mile bulk of the ship, he could see the far denser mass of stars behind him, which seemed to form an almost solid band. This was the view through the galactic centre from which they were travelling, and indeed had been travelling for years, at a speed that he couldn't quite remember at the moment, but he knew it was terribly fast. It was something approaching the speed of something or other, or or was it three times the speed of something else? Jolly impressive, anyway. He peered into the bright distance behind the ship, looking for something. He did this every few minutes or so, but never found what he was looking for. He didn't let it worry him, though. The scientist chaps had been very insistent that everything was going to be perfectly all right, providing nobody panicked and everybody got on and did their bit in an orderly fashion. He wasn't panicking. As far as he was concerned, everything was going splendidly. He dabbed at his shoulder with a large, frothy sponge. He crept back into his mind that he was feeling mildly irritated about something. Now, what was all that about? A slight cough alerted him to the fact that the ship's first officer was still standing nearby. Nice chap, number one. <laughs> Not one of the very brightest. Had that odd spot of difficulty doing up his shoelaces, but jolly good officer. Jolly good officer material for all that. The captain wasn't a man to kick a chap when he was bending over trying to do up his shoelaces, however long it took him. Not like that ghastly number two, strutting about all over the place, polishing his buttons, issuing reports every hour. Step still moving, captain. Still on course, captain. Oxygen level still being maintained, captain. Give it a miss, was the captain's vote. Oh, yes, that was one thing that had been irritating him. Uh, that was the one thing that had been irritating him. He peered down at number one. Yes, Captain. He was shouting something or other about having found... Yes, Captain. He was shouting something or other about having found some prisoners. The Captain thought about this. Seemed pretty unlikely to him, but he wasn't one to stand in his officer's way. Well, perhaps that'll keep him happy for a bit, he said. He's always wanted some. Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent trudged onwards up the ship's apparently endless corridors. Number two marched behind them, barking the occasional order about not making any false moves or trying any funny stuff. They seemed to have passed at least a mile of continuous brown hessian wall weave. Finally, they reached a large steel door, which slid open when number two shouted at it. They entered. To the eyes of Fort Prefect and Arthur Dent, the most remarkable thing about the ship's bridge was not the 50-foot diameter hemispherical dome which covered it, and through which the dazzling display of stars shone down on them. To people who have eaten at the restaurant at the end of the universe, such wonders are commonplace. Nor was it the bewildering array, a bewildering array of instruments that crowded the long circumferential wall behind them, around them. To Arthur, this was exactly what spaceships were traditionally supposed to look like, and to Ford, it looked thoroughly antiquated. He confirmed his he confirmed his suspicions that disaster area stuntship had taken them back at least a million, if not two million years before their own time. No, the thing that really caught them off balance was the bath.
The bath stood on a six-foot pedestal of rough-hewn blue water crystal that was of a baroque monstrosity, not often seen outside the, Maximeg the Maximegalon Museum of Diseased Imaginings. An intestinal an intestinal jumble of plumbing had been picked out in gold leaf rather than decently buried at midnight in an unmarked grave. The taps and shower attachment would have made a gargoyle jump. As the dominant centerpiece of the Starship Bridge, it was terribly wrong. As the dominant centerpiece of a Starship Bridge, it was terribly wrong. Now oh, stop it. As the dominant centrepiece of a starship bridge, it was terribly wrong, and it was with the embittered air of the man who knew this that number two approached it. Captain, sir, he shouted through clenched teeth. A difficult trick, but he had had years during which to perfect it. A large genial face with a genial foam-covered arm popped up above the rim of the monstrous bath. Ah, hello, number two, said the captain, waving a cheery sponge. Having a nice day? Number two snapped even further to attention than he already was. I have brought you the prisoners I located in Freezer Bay 7, sir, he yapped. Ford and Arthur coughed in confusion. Uh, hello, they said. The captain beamed at them. So number two really had found some prisoners. Well, good for him, thought the captain. Nice to see a chap doing what he's best at. Ah, hello there, he said to them. Excuse me now, getting up, having a quick bath. Well, uh, gin tonics all round. Uh, look at the fridge, number one. Certainly, sir. It's a curious fact that one of which, uh, and, and one to which no one quite knows how much important to attach, that something like 85% of all known worlds, of all known worlds in the galaxy, to be primitive uh, or highly advanced, be they primitive or highly advanced, have invented a drink called ginantonics or gntx or ginanornics or any one of a thousand or more variations on the same phonetic theme. The drinks themselves are not the same and vary between the Silvovian chinomantic minnings, which is an ordinary water served at slightly above room temperature, and the gargachuans drinks Anthony Anthony Kicks. Tzin uh, Anthony Kicks <laughs> Gargrakian Gargrakian Tzin Anthony Kicks which kills cows at a hundred paces and in fact the one common factor between all of them beyond the fact that the names sound the same is that they were all invented and named before the worlds concerned made contact with any other worlds Sinanato Mingis what can be made of this fact? It exists in total isolation. As far as any theory of structural linguistics is concerned, it is right off the graph, and yet it persists. Old structural linguistics get very angry when young structural linguistics uh, go on about it. Young structural linguistics get deeply excited about it and stay up late at night, convinced that they are very close to something of profound importance, and end up becoming old structural linguistics before their time, getting very angry with the young ones. Structural linguists 
Structural linguistics is a bitterly divided and unhappy discipline, and a large number of its practitioners spend too many nights drowning their problems in Quisian sodas. Oh, whiskey and sodas. Oh, yes, there we go, yes. Old structural linguists get very angry when young structural linguists go on about it. Young structural linguists get very deeply excited about it and stay up late at night to convince themselves yeah. becoming old structural linguists before their time. I'll have to edit that. I haven't got the strength to read it again. Number two stood before the captain's bathtub, trembling with frustration. Don't you want to integrate, interrogate the prisoner, sir? Don't you want to interrogate the prisoner, sir? He squealed. The captain peered at him in amusement. Why, young Golga Frencham, should I want to do that? He asked. To get information out of them, sir. To find out where I came here. Oh, no, 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 said the captain. I suppose they just dropped in for a quick gin and tonics, <laughs> didn't you? But, sir, they're my prisoners. I must interrogate them. The captain looked at them doubtfully. Oh, all right, he said. If you must, ask them what they want to drink. A hard, cold gleam came into number, two, into number two's eyes. He advanced slowly on Ford, Prefect and Arthur Dent. All right, you scum, he growled. You vermin, he jabbed Ford with the killer zap gun. Steady on number two, admonished the captain gently. What do you want to drink? Number two screamed. Well, the uh, uh, gin and tonic sounds very nice to me, said Ford. What about you, Arthur? Arthur blinked. Well, uh, oh, uh, yes, he said. With ice or without, bellowed number two. Oh, with, please, said Ford. Lemon? Yes, please, said Ford. And do you have any of those nice little biscuits, you know, the cheesy ones? I'm asking uh, questions, howled number two, his body quaking with apoplectic fury. Apoplectic fury. Uh, number two, said the captain softly. Sir, push off with you, there's a good chap. Trying to have a relaxing bath. Number two's eyes narrowed and became what are known in the shouting and killing people trade as cold slits. The idea presumably being to give your opponent the impression that you've lost your glasses or are having difficulty keeping awake. Why this is frightening is as an unyet unresolved is as... Frightening is an as yet unresolved problem. He advanced on the captain, his number two's mouth a thin hard line. Again, tricky to know why this is understood as frightening behaviour. If, whilst wandering through the jungle of troll, you were suddenly to come upon the fabled ravenous bug bleeder, bug bladder beast, you would have reason to be grateful if its mouth was the, as, as a thin hard line, rather than, as it usually is, a gaping mass of slavering fangs. May I remind you, sir, hissed number two of the captain, that you have now been in that bath for over three years. This final shot delivered, number two spun on his heel and stalked off to a corner to practice darting eye movements in the mirror. The captain squirmed in his bath. He gave Ford Prefect a lame smile. Well, you need to relax a lot on a job like mine, he said. Ford slowly lowered his hands. 
It provoked no reaction. Arthur lowered his. Treading very slowly and carefully, Ford moved over to the bath pedestal. He patted it. Nice, he lied. He wondered if it was safe to grin. Very slowly and carefully, he grinned. It was safe. Um, he said to the captain. Yes, said the captain. I uh, wonder, said Ford, could I ask you actually what your job is, in fact? A hand tapped him on the shoulder. He span round. It was the first officer. You drinks, he said. Oh, th thank you, said Ford. He and Arthur took their gin and tonics. Arthur sipped his and was surprised to discover it tasted very much like a whiskey and soda. I mean, I, I couldn't help noticing, said Ford, also taking a sip. The um, bodies in the hold. Bodies, said the captain in surprise. Ford paused and thought to himself, never take anything for granted, he thought. Could it be that the captain doesn't know he's got 15 million dead bodies on his ship? The captain was nodding cheerfully at him and also appeared to be playing with a rubber duck. Ford looked round. Number two was staring at him in the mirror, but only for an instant his eyes were constantly on the move. The first officer was just standing there, holding the drinks tray and smiling benignly. Body, said the captain again. Ford licked his lips. Yes, he said. All those dead telephone sanitizers and account executives, you know, down in the hold. The captain stared at him. Suddenly he threw back his head and laughed. Oh, they're not dead, he said. Good Lord, no. No, they're frozen. They're going to be revived. Ford did something he very rarely did. He blinked. Arthur seemed to come out of a trance. You mean you've got a hole full of frozen hairdressers, he said. Oh, yes, said the captain. Millions of them. Hairdressers, tired TV producers, insurance salesmen, personnel officers, security guards, public relations executives, management consultants, you name them. We've got to colonise another planet. Ford wobbled very slightly. Exciting, isn't it, said the captain. What, uh, with that lot, said Arthur. Ah, now, uh, don't misunderstand me, said the captain. We're just one of the ships in the Ark fleet. We're the uh, B-Ark, you see. Uh, sorry, can I just ask you to run a bit more hot water for me? Arthur obliged, and a cascade of pink, frothy water swirled around the bath. The captain let out a sigh of pleasure. Thank you so much, my dear fellow. We do keep ourselves there. Uh, do, do help yourself to more drinks, of course. Ford tossed down his drink, took the bottle from the first officer's tray, and really refilled his glass to the top. What he said is a, a bee arc. This is, said the captain, and swished the foamy water around joyfully with the duck. Yes, said Ford, but, well, what's happened was, you see, um, said the captain, our planet, uh, the world from which we came, uh, was, so to speak, um, doomed. Doomed? Oh, yes. Uh, so, um, what everybody thought was, let's pack the whole population to some giant spaceships and go and settle on another planet. Aye, having told as much of his story, he settled... Having told this much of his story, he settled back with a satisfied grunt. You mean a less doomed one, prompted Arthur. What did he say, dear fellow? A, a less doomed planet you were going to settle on? 
are going to settle on, yes. Uh, so it was decided to build three ships, you see, three arcs in space. And uh, I'm not boring you, am I? No, no, said Forth firmly. Said Ford firmly. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, it's delightful, reflected the captain, to have someone else to talk to for a change. Number two's eyes darted feverishly about the room again, then settled back on the mirror like a pair of like a pair of flies barely distracted from their favourite prey of moths old of moths old meat. Favourite prey of month old meat. Trouble with a long journey like this, continued the captain, is that you end up just talking to yourself a lot, which gets terribly boring because half the time you know what you're going to say next. Only half the time? asked Arthur in surprise. The captain thought for a moment. Yes, about half, I'd say. Anyway, where's the soap? He fished around and found it. Yes, so anyway, he resumed, the idea was that the first ship, the A ship, would go all, would, would, uh, on the, um, uh, the idea was that in the first ship, the A ship, would go all the brilliant leaders, the scientists, the great artists, you know, all, all the achievers, and into the third or C ship would go all the people who did the actual work, who made things and did things, and then into the B ship, that's us, would go everyone else. The middlemen, you see. He smiled happily at them. And we set off first, uh, he concluded, and hummed a little bathing tune. The little bathing tune, which had been composed for him by one of the world's most exciting and prolific jingle writers, who was currently asleep in hold 36, some 900 yards behind them, covered what would otherwise have been an awkward moment of silence. Ford and Arthur shuffled their feet and furiously avoided each other's eyes. Ah, uh, said Arthur after a moment, what exactly was it that was wrong with your planet then? Oh, it was doomed, as I said, said the captain. Apparently it was going to crash into the sun or something, or maybe it was the moon was going to crash into us, <laughs> something of the kind. Oh, absolutely terrifying prospect, whatever it was. Oh, Oh, said the first officer suddenly, I thought it was that the planet was going to be invaded by a gigantic swarm of twelve-foot piranobies. Wasn't that it? Number two span around, eyes ablaze the cold, hard light that only comes with the amount of practice he was prepared to put in. It's not what I was told, he hissed. My commanding officer told me the entire planet was in imminent danger of being eaten by an enormous mutant star goat. Oh, really? said Ford Prefect. Yes, a mysterious creature from the pit of hell with scything teeth, 10,000 miles long breath, with those boil oceans, claws that can tear continents from their roots, a thousand eyes, the bird like the sun, slavery jaws a million miles across a monster such as you've never, never, ever. <coughs> <coughs> and they made sure you set off first, did they? inquired Arthur. Oh, yes, said the captain. Well, everyone said, very nicely, I thought, that it was very important for morale to feel that they would be arriving on a planet where they could be sure of a good haircut and where the phones were clean. Ah, oh, yes, agreed Ford. I can see that would be very important. And the uh, other ships, um, they, they followed on after you, did they? For a moment, the captain did not answer. He twisted around in his bath and gazed backwards over the huge bulk of the ship towards the bright galactic centre. He squinted into the inconceivable distance. 
Ah, well, funny you should say that, he said, and allowed himself a slight frown at Fort Privet, because, curiously enough, we haven't heard a peep out of them since we left five years ago. But they must be behind us somewhere. He peered off into the distance again. Ford peered with him and gave a thoughtful frown. Unless, of course, he said softly, they were eaten by the goat. Ah, oh, yes, said the captain with a slight hesitancy creeping into his voice. The goat. His eyes passed over the solid shapes of the instruments and computers that lined the bridge. They winked away innocently at him. He stared out at the stars, but none of them said a word. He glanced at his first and second officers, but they seemed lost in their own thoughts for a moment. He glanced at Ford Prefect, who raised his eyebrows at him. It's a funny thing, you know, said the captain at last, but now that I actually come to think of tell a story to someone else, I mean, it does strike you as odd, number two. It's a funny thing, you know, said the captain at last, but now that I actually come to tell a story to someone else, I mean, does it strike you as odd, number two? Uh, said number two. Well, said Ford, I can see what a lot of things you're going to talk about. So thanks for the drinks, and if you could sort of uh, drop us off at the nearest convenient planet. Ha, ah, well, that's a little difficult, you see, said the captain, because our trajectory thingy was preset before we left the Golga Frenchman. I think partly because it's not very good, because I'm not very good with figures. You mean we're stuck here on this ship, explained Ford, suddenly losing patience with the whole charade. When are you meant to be reaching this planet you're meant to be colonising? Oh, we're nearly there, I think, said the captain. Any second now. It's probably time I was getting out of this bath, in fact. Oh, I don't know that. Why stop when you're just enjoying it? So we're actually going to land in a minute? Well, not so much land, in fact, not actually uh, land as uh, so much as, uh, no, um, what are you talking about, said Ford sharply. Well, said Captain, picking his way through the words carefully, I think, as far as I can remember, we were programmed to crash on it. Crash, shouted Ford and Arthur. Uh, yes, said the Captain, yes, it, it's all part of the plan, I think. There was a terribly good reason for it, which I, I can't quite remember at the moment. It was something to do with, um... Ford exploded. You're a load of useless bloody loonies, he shouted. Ah, yes, that was it, beamed the captain. That was the reason. And there we must leave our confused adventurers in the lurch as usual, but with every hope of something miraculous occurring, as it so frequently does. Anyway, these are available online and on Ambron Radio from time to time. I hope you enjoy them all. Thank you for your attention. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. Mm-hmm.